Chapter One of Hunting Tower by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter One How a Retired Provision Merchant Felt the Impulse of Spring. Mr. Dixon McCunn completed the polishing of his smooth cheeks with the towel, glancing appreciatively at their reflection in the looking glass, and then permitted his eyes to stray out of the window. In the little garden, lilacs were budding and there was a gold line of daffodils beside the tiny greenhouse. Beyond the sooty wall a birch flaunted its new tassels, and the jackdaws were circling about the steeple of the Guthrie Memorial Kirk. A blackbird whistled from a thorn-bush, and Mr. McCumb was inspired to follow its example. He began a tolerable version of Roy's wife of Aldivarach. He felt singularly light-hearted, and the immediate cause was his safety-razor. A week ago, he had bought the thing in a sudden fit of enterprise, and now he shaved in five minutes, where before he had taken twenty, and no longer confronted his fellows, at least one day in three, with a countenance ludicrously mottled by sticking-plaster. Calculation revealed to him the fact that in his fifty-five years, having begun to shave at eighteen, he had wasted three thousand three hundred and seventy hours, or one hundred and forty days, or between four and five months, by his neglect of this admirable invention. Now he felt that he had stolen a march on time. He had fallen heir thus late to a fortune in unpurchasable leisure. He began to dress himself in the sombre clothes in which he had been accustomed for thirty-five years and more to go down to the shop in Meern Street. And then a thought came to him which made him discard the grey-striped trousers, sit down on the edge of his bed, and muse. Since Saturday the shop was a thing of the past. On Saturday, at half-past eleven, to the accompaniment of a glass of dubious sherry, he had completed the arrangements by which the provision-shop in Meern Street, which had borne so long the legend of D. McCunn, together with the branches in Crossmeloof and the Shores, became the property of a company eclept the United Supply Stores Limited. He had received in payment cash, debentures, and preference shares, and his lawyers and his own acumen had acclaimed the bargain but all the weekend he had been a little sad. It was the end of so old a song, and he knew no other tune to sing. He was comfortably off, healthy, free from any particular cares in life, but free, too, from any particular duties. "'Will I be going to turn into a useless old man?' he asked himself. But he had woke up this Monday to the sound of the blackbird, and the world, which had seemed rather empty twelve hours before, was now brisk and alluring. His prowess in quick shaving assured him of his youth. "'I'm no that dead old,' he observed, as he sat on the edge of the bed, to his reflection in the big looking-glass. It was not an old face. The sandy hair was a little thin on the top and a little grey at the temples. The figure was perhaps a little too full for youthful elegance, and an athlete would have censured the neck as too fleshy for perfect health. But the cheeks were rosy, the skin clear, and the pale eyes singularly childlike. They were a little weak, those eyes, and had some difficulty in looking for long at the same object, so that Mr. McCunn did not stare people in the face, and had, in consequence, at one time in his career, acquired a perfectly undeserved reputation for cunning. He shaved clean and looked uncommonly like a wise, plump schoolboy. As he gazed at his simulacrum, he stopped whistling Roy's wife, and let his countenance harden into a noble sternness. Then he laughed, 
and observed in the language of his youth that there was life in the old dog yet. In that moment the soul of Mr. McCunn conceived the great plan. The first sign of it was that he swept all his business garments unceremoniously onto the floor. The next that he rootled at the bottom of a deep drawer and extracted a most disreputable tweed suit. It had once been what I believe is called a lovet mixture, but was now a nondescript sub-fusk, with bright patches of colour like moss on Winston. He regarded it lovingly, for it had been for twenty years his holiday wear, emerging annually for a hallowed month to be stained with salt and bleached with sun. He put it on, and stood shrouded in an odour of camphor. A pair of thick nailed boots and a flannel shirt and collar completed the equipment of the sportsman. He had another long look at himself in the glass, and then descended whistling to breakfast. This time the tune was MacGregor's Gathering, and the sound of it stirred the grimy lips of a man outside who was delivering coals, himself a MacGregor, to follow suit. Mr. McCunn was a very fountain of music that morning. Tibby, the aged maid, had his newspaper and letters waiting by his plate, and a dish of ham and eggs frizzling near the fire. He fell too ravenously, but still musingly, and he reached the stage of scones and jam before he glanced at his correspondence. There was a letter from his wife, now holidaying at the Nuke Hydropathic. She reported that her health was improving, and that she had met various people who had known somebody who had known somebody else whom she had once known herself. Mr. McCunn read the dutiful pages and smiled. "'Mamma's enjoying herself fine,' he observed to the teapot. He knew that for his wife the earthly paradise was a hydropathic, where she put on her afternoon dress and every jewel she possessed when she rose in the morning, ate large meals of which the novelty atoned for the nastiness, and collected an immense casual acquaintance with whom she discussed ailments, ministers, sudden deaths, and the intricate genealogies of her class. For his part, he rancorously hated hydropathics, having once spent a black week under the roof of one in his wife's company. He detested the food, the Turkish baths, he had a passionate aversion to bearing his body before strangers, the inability to find anything to do, and the compulsion to endless small talk. A thought flitted over his mind, which he was too loyal to formulate. Once he and his wife had had similar likings, but they had taken different roads since their child died. Janet. He saw again. He was never quite free from the sight. The solemn little white-frocked girl who had died long ago in the spring. It may have been the thought of the new hydropathic, or more likely the thin, clean scent of the daffodils with which Tibby had decked the table. But long ere breakfast was finished, the great plan had ceased to be an airy vision, and became a sober, well-masoned structure. Mr. McCunn, I may confess it at the start, was an incurable romantic. He had had a humdrum life since the day when he had first entered his uncle's shop, with the hope of some day succeeding that honest grocer, and his feet had never strayed a yard from his sober rut. But his mind, like the dying gladiators, had been far away. As a boy he had voyaged among books, and they had given him a world where he would shape his career according to his whimsical fancy. Not that Mr. McCann was what is known as a great reader. He read slowly and fastidiously, and sought in literature for one thing alone. Sir Walter Scott had been his first guide, 
but he read the novels not for their insight into human character or for their historical pageantry, but because they gave him material wherewith to construct fantastic journeys. It was the same with Dickens. A lit tavern, a stagecoach, post-horses, the clack of hoofs on a frosty road, went to his head like wine. He was a Jacobite not because he had any views on divine right, but because he had always before his eyes a picture of a knot of adventurers in cloaks, new landed from France, among the western heather. On this select basis he built up his small library. Defoe, Hacklute, Hazlitt and the Essayists, Boswell, some indifferent romances, and a shelf of spirited poetry. His tastes became known, and he acquired a reputation for a scholarly habit. He was president of the Literary Society of the Guthrie Memorial Kirk, and read to its members a variety of papers full of a gusto which rarely became critical. He had been three times chairman at Burns' anniversary dinners, and had delivered orations in a eulogy of the National Bard. Not because he greatly admired him, he thought him rather vulgar, but because he took Burns as an emblem of the un-Burns-like literature which he loved. Mr. McCombe was no scholar, and was sublimely unconscious of background. He grew his flowers and his small garden plot, oblivious of their origin, so long as they gave him the colour and scent he sought. Scent, I say, for he appreciated more than the mere picturesque. He had a passion for words and cadences, and would be haunted for weeks by a cunning phrase, savouring it as a connoisseur savours a vintage. Wherefore, long ago, when he could ill afford it, he purchased the Edinburgh Stevenson. They were the only large books on his shelves, so he had a liking for small volumes, things he could stuff into his pocket in that sudden journey which he loved to contemplate. Only he had never taken it. The shop had tied him up for eleven months in the year, and the twelfth had always found him settled decorously with his wife in some seaside villa. He had not fretted, for he was content with dreams. He was always a little tired, too, when the holidays came, and his wife told him he was growing old. He consoled himself with tags from the more philosophic of his authors, but he scarcely needed consolation, for he had large stores of modest contentment. But now something had happened. A spring morning and a safety-razor had convinced him that he was still young. Since yesterday he was a man of a large leisure. Providence had done for him what he would never have done for himself. The rut in which he had travelled so long had given place to open country. He repeated to himself one of the quotations with which he had been wont to stir the literary young men at the Guthrie Memorial Kirk. "'What's a man's age? He must hurry more, that's all. Cram in a day what his youth took a year to hold. When we mind labour, then only we're too old.' What age had Methuselah when he begat Saul? He would go journeying, who but he, pleasantly. It sounds a trivial resolve, but it quickened Mr. McCunn to the depths of his being, a holiday, and alone. On foot, of course, for he must travel light. He would buckle on a pack after the approved fashion. He had the very thing in a drawer upstairs which he had bought some years ago at a sale. That, and a waterproof, and a stick— and his outfit was complete. A book, too, and as he lit his first pipe he considered what it should be. Poetry, clearly, for it was the spring, and besides poetry could be got in pleasantly small bulk. He stood before his bookshelves trying to select a volume, rejecting one after another as inapposite. Browning, Keats, 
Shelley, they seemed more suited for the hearth than for the roadside. He did not want anything Scots, for he was of opinion that spring came more richly in England, and that English people had a better notion of it. He was tempted by the Oxford Anthology, but was deterred by its thickness, for he did not possess the thin paper edition. Finally, he selected Isaac Walton. He had never fished in his life, but the complete angler seemed to fit his mood. It was old and curious and learned and fragrant with the youth of things. He remembered its falling cadences, its country songs and wise meditations. Decidedly, it was the right scrip for his pilgrimage. Characteristically, he thought last of where he was to go. Every bit of the world beyond his front door had its charms to the seeing eye. There seemed nothing common or unclean that fresh morning. Even a walk among culpits had its attractions. But, since he had the right to choose, he lingered over it like an epicure. Not the highlands, for spring came late among their sour mosses. Some place where there were fields and woods and inns, somewhere too within call of the sea. It must not be too remote, for he had no time to waste on train journeys, nor too near, for he wanted a countryside untainted. Presently he thought of Carrick, a good green land, as he remembered it, with purposeful white roads and public-houses sacred to the memory of Burns, near the hills, but yet lowland, and with a bright sea chafing on its shores. He decided on Carrick, found a map, and planned his journey. Then he routed out his knapsack, packed it with a modest change of raiment, and sent out Tibby to buy chocolate and tobacco, and to cash a cheque at the Strathclyde Bank. Till Tibby returned, he occupied himself with delicious dreams. He saw himself daily growing browner and leaner, swinging along broad highways or wandering in bypaths. He pictured his seasons of ease when he unslung his pack and smoked in some clump of lilacs by a burnside. He remembered a phrase of Stevenson somewhat like that. He would meet and talk with all sorts of folk, an exhilarating prospect, for Mr. McCunn loved his kind. There would be the evening hour before he reached his inn, when, pleasantly tired, he would top some ridge and see the welcoming lights of a little town. There would be the lamplit after supper-time when he would read and reflect, and the start in the gay morning when tobacco tastes sweetest, and even fifty-five seems young. It would be holiday of the purest, for no business now tugged at his coat-tails. He was beginning a new life, he told himself, when he could cultivate the seedling interests which had withered beneath the far-reaching shade of the shop. Was ever a man more fortunate or more free? Tibby was told that he was going off for a week or two. No letters need be forwarded, for he would be constantly moving. But Mrs. McCann at the new hydropathic would be kept informed of his whereabouts. Presently he stood on his doorstep, a stocky figure in ancient tweeds, with a bulging pack slung on his arm and a stout hazel stick in his hand. A passer-by would have remarked an elderly shopkeeper, bent apparently on a day in the country, a common little man on a prosaic errand. But the passer-by would have been wrong, for he could not see into the heart. The plump citizen was the eternal pilgrim. He was Jason, Ulysses, Eric the Red, Albuquerque, Cortez, starting out to discover new worlds. Before he left, Mr. McCann had given Tibby a letter to post. That morning 
he had received an epistle from a benevolent acquaintance, one Mackintosh, regarding a group of urchins who had called themselves the Gorbals Diehards. Behind the premises in Mearn Street lay a tract of slums full of mischievous boys with whom his staff waged truceless war. But lately there had started among them a kind of unauthorised and unofficial boy scouts, who, without uniform or badge or any kind of paraphernalia, followed the banner of Sir Robert Baden-Pearl and subjected themselves to a rude discipline. They were far too poor to join an orthodox troop, but they faithfully copied what they believed to be the practices of more fortunate boys. Mr. McCannup witnessed their pathetic parades, and had even passed the time of day with their leader, a red-haired savage called Dougal. The philanthropic Mactosh had taken an interest in the gang, and now desired subscriptions to send them to camp in the country. Mr. McCann, in his new exhilaration, felt that he could not deny to others what he proposed for himself. His last act before leaving was to send Mackintosh ten pounds. End of chapter 1